my dear Michael, I've no one worthy to quarrel with left now. We've had many rows, we've had many friendships, but we've never let the sun go down on our wrath, and you've been a great inspiration to me, and a great lesson to me. And I cannot speak in any of the languages that you speak so well, the Irish you loved, the French you knew so well, the Spanish that was your instinctive language when you tripped over something or talked in your sleep or something like that, or swore in. I cannot speak in any of these. I only want to say, read something by a poet, not your beloved Yeats, but a poet that we both reverenced and who served us well and whom you have served well. And I want to read what you and I have agreed long ago of the finest epitaph written for any man, and surely it is worthy for you. It is from Cymbeline and by William Shakespeare. And I say, dearest Michael, fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter rages. Thou thy worldly task hast done, home art gone, and tain thy wages. Golden lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers come to dust. Hilton, reading our great master. Goodbye, dear Michael. God bless you. Rest in peace. Well, that was Hilton Edwards' final farewell to his lifelong friend and partner, the actor, writer, designer and co-founder of Dublin's Gate Theatre, Micheál MacLeamore, who died on the 6th of March, 1978. Twenty years after his death, we thought it might be a nice idea to take time out to remember his life and work and his great contribution to Irish life. Helping me along the path of memory are Mary Cannon, Managing Director of the Gate Theatre during the reign of Micheál and Hilton, Christopher Fitzsimon, author of their biography The Boys, and Bill Golding, who appeared on stage many times with MacLeamore. Christopher, although Micheál was the official name, I've never heard anyone who knew him call him anything except Michael. I wonder, is there a certain irony there? Well, everyone did address him as Michael, and uh, except people who didn't know him, who had seen the word Hall with the fathers on it written on theatre <laughs> programmes. Right. And I think, I think really, uh, that he preferred to be addressed as Michael. But uh, he took the name Michael from the character in Peter Pan, J.M. Barry's play that he played in as a child. He played three different parts in Peter Pan as he grew older, uh, the youngest child in the family and then the middle child, and then he played the, the part of Michael. And then that apparently uh, is the reason why he took the name of Michael. And there's the irony, because he wasn't Irish at all. He wasn't Irish at all, no. But he never uh, denied the name Wilmore. He was, he was actually Alfred Wilmore, not even Michael Wilmore. <laughs> uh, but he never denied the Wilmore. And in his autobiography, All for Hecuba, which I think came out, out round about 1943 mm. or, or 44, because I remember my mother getting it from the local library. And, of course, I've read it many times since then. But he does say in that that his name was Wilmore. And as a child actor, he was Wilmore on the stage. Uh, and, uh, of course, we all assume that Wilmore is Will is Liam and Moore is Moore. Yeah. Uh, but, um, of course, he pretended that, in fact, the Wilmore family were originally Mock-Liamore kind of generations ago in County Cork and County Clare. But that was a fabrication. Why? 
Well, um, for a number of reasons, I think. Uh, he, he, in, he invented this Irish persona, and I think it, it, st- it, it stemmed from a lot of things. First of all, he had been a very, very famous child actor in London. I mean, thousands of signed photographs of this wonderful child in Peter Pan, and also he was the first Oliver Twist, the first male Oliver Twist on the stage. Um, Oliver Twist had always been played by ladies, ladies sometimes of aged uh, 40 or 50 on the stage. And he was the first male one and made a great hit. And uh, when uh, he found that he had to uh, leave the stage, as all children have to, uh, at the age of 14 or 15, your voice breaks if you're a boy, but there are no parts in the theatre for teenagers and adolescents. There are children and there are young people and there are, there are adults, of course, but there was nothing for him. And he was thrown out, not just out of work, but out of the profession that he had been in since the, since the age of, of, of nine. Um, and he had to invent, being a very, very imaginative child, obviously, he had to invent something for him. And it happened that he had seen the Abbey players. Uh, of course, he always said he saw them in Ireland, but he didn't. He saw them when they used to make their tour, tours to mm. London. And he was greatly taken by this very experimental and highly modern thing, you see, the, mm. the, the peasant plays. And he was just as influenced uh, by the Abbey plays as he was by the Russian ballet, which... The other thing as a child that he and his sister used to go and see. And uh, he was taken by, by Irish things. He started to read the poetry of Yeats and he was just grabbed by it as an imaginative teenager might, might be. And uh, he went to classes, believe it or not, and this is perfectly true, uh, to the, the Gaelic League mm-hmm. uh, branch in London and he learnt the Irish language. Mary, d- did you buy this whole thing of him being Irish? Yes. Absolutely. Because he was so very convincing. Uh, he spoke Beautifully, you know, inflected Irish, and and there was never any question at all. I don't speak Irish myself, but my family do, and um, you know, it it's it never occurred to me to doubt him. And Bill, did you fall for the whole thing? I met them first uh, in about 1967. I had no reason. I had seen Michael on the stage, and I had no reason, nor did anybody else who came along, not to believe absolutely that he was an Irishman. Mm-hmm. And the, the extraordinary thing is that quite obviously when he made this decision, as Christopher rightly says, he became the consummate actor on and off the stage because he created a character which he had to play every day of his life thereafter. And it might have tri- tripped him up towards the end, but that's a, a, another subject. But on and off the stage, he was the consummate man. And to think that he became more Irish than the Irish themselves before he entered the country is quite, quite remarkable. But for him, it, it, it was acceptable because he needed characters to play at all times. In the normal course of events, this might be called living a lie, but mm. in this business, it, it isn't. He just needed to do that, and he created this marvelous character, this this brogue, this this everything that was predetermined and decided upon, and he did it so beautifully. And of course, as we said, he not only learnt the Irish language, but he spoke it better than many a native. Mishair, 
Well, that was Michael reading Pauline Pierce's poem, Misha Era. You know, I, I find it a very strange thing, but the Irish there is, uh, there's great wisdom in hindsight, I suppose, but the Irish is a little bit like a Meryl Streep performance. It's almost too perfect. I suppose so. My grandmother, who didn't speak Irish, but was greatly involved in the kind of national movement, she was a, she was a, f- a friend of Constance Markovich, and she used to listen to Michal McLeamore on the radio. This would be in the 30s. And she said, really, if I could speak Irish as well as that, I wish, I wish I, I could do it. Mm. The other thing that strikes you about that, Bill, it's the hypnotic quality of the voice. Absolutely. Now, I know you do an awful lot of work um, in the commercial field. Indeed. It's strange that with a voice like that, he never did it. <laughs> well, I suppose if it had been in vogue, as I said to him from time to time, when he was in, in need of his next tin of caviar, he might very well, <laughs> he might very well have indulged because God knows he did have the equipment. Mm-hmm. But... Um, when I met them first, I was absolutely in awe, and particularly of his voice, because he he used it in the only way I can describe as a sort of a Celtic cello, playing mm. a Celtic cello, if you can imagine what that might do. And, of course, he never missed an opportunity to get at me, and I, I think one of the things that endeared me to them and them to me was that I always gave as good as I got, because he would always send me up a bit about this this business of doing voiceover stuff for commercials, uh, as he would refer to it as prostituting my art. <laughs> But he he recounted a a wonderful story to me on one occasion. And, of course, when he did, it was certainly a short story or at least a one-act play. When Michael told you anything, (laughs) he had to put aside a little time. And he would even describe what he might be wearing at the time when when (laughs) something happened to him. Absolutely. (laughs) But he described this lovely story of a fellow coming to him from an advertising agency. And he even told me that he was wearing an Egyptian silk dressing gown at the time, you'll see. And this dear boy wanted me to do what he called... A voice over. <laughs> and what was very unfortunate, he says, was it was a, a voice over for a deodorant. And what added insult to injury, he said, was it was a deodorant called Mum. Well, I thanked the boy profusely for the <laughs> offer of work, which I declined on the grounds, as I said, I have no idea what a mum is, and if I had, I think I'd be very embarrassed, and I closed the door. <laughs> very, he was very flamboyant, wasn't he? He certainly was, yes. I have a, a lovely picture of, uh, you know, an occasion when he and Hilton had attended a Sybil Connolly showing <laughs> and uh, one evening, and the following day he came in and he told me about it when I went up to talk to him about letters bring his post and so on he told me about it and he's, he was absolutely fascinated by a dress called Instant Rapture which was <laughs> the star of the show as far as he was concerned beautifully uh, beautiful silk and, and the colour and so on and so on and uh, then I came down and started working in the office and you know uh, in the, the early afternoon the typewriter mechanic had come in to check the typewriter and put it right and um, there was a knock on the door and of the office, and I said, come in. Nothing happened. Another knock, and I said, come in. And uh, in swept, the, the door opened, and in swept this creation. And I think you could only call it that because he was wrapped up like a mummy. He had about 49 different layers on him, <laughs> hats and scarves and jackets and trousers and... Everything in a sort of um, colour, a sort of magenta colour. He was very, very attached to this colour. Anyway. All magenta, uh, magenta, so much, magenta, yeah, magenta and magenta. Yeah, yeah. Yes, dear. But he was, he was sort of, sw- he started swirling around the room. You see, discarding scarves and hats and uh, jackets and whatnot. And the little man had been kneeling behind the desk, my desk. You see, doing the, t- the typewriter, and he sort of suddenly reared his head up 
behind this. <laughs> and halfway around the room, you see, Michael said, oh, how do you do, dear man? Uh, nice to see you here. And went and said, and this, of course, is instant rupture. <laughs> Hence the colour, dear. <laughs> and disappeared. <laughs> and this poor unfortunate creature who was behind the desk said to me, um, that was Mr. McAleema, wasn't it? <laughs> and I said, yes, it was. I didn't think he did anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, this is a, a Freudian progression in thought, and I don't know why it leads me to it, but I think immediately the, the old lady says no <laughs> for some odd reason. And that was one of his favourite roles in that play, Dennis Johnston's play. Could you just fill us in on the background? Uh, uh, yes, he played uh, two parts in the play. It's one part, uh, mm. but the part—it's it's a part. It's called the speaker. It's an actor uh, in a very old-fashioned uh, Irish melodrama, and. Um, he, the 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 the, uh, the the speaker or the actor is playing the part of Robert Emmett, and sudden during the early part of the play, he is is knocked out by mistake by one of the uh, the small part players with a cudgel or something like that. He genuinely falls on the stage in a swoon, and um, he the, the play changes and becomes a dream play after that. You see, and somebody comes forward and says, "Is there a doctor in the house?" And there's an actor planted in the audience who goes up, you see, to attend to the, to the injured actor. Often, actually, on many occasions, real doctors got up to the audience <laughs> and went up, went up to the stage. Um, and um, the play was first uh, submitted to the Abbey Theatre. The, the Yates and Lady Gregory felt that they simply, I, I really oughtn't to say, w were had unable to find a, the right kind of producer to direct uh, such an extraordinary dream play. It was written in the expressionistic mode, which was popular at the time. And they felt they couldn't do it, but they gave a subscription to the little company that was called the Dublin Gate Theatre Studio, which was playing in the Peacock at the time and they put on the play. And isn't uh, that how it gets its title? Because of Lady Gregory, Lady Gregory is, is said to have scribbled on the... or No, uh, somebody uh, in the office is said to have scribbled on the envelope when returning the play to the author, Dennis, Dennis Johnston, the old lady says no. <laughs> the play had originally been called Shadow Dance, mm, which is yeah. actually a much better mm, title to describe yeah. the play, but it remained the old lady says no. Well, let's and, hear a little bit of it now, shall we? Strumpet city in the sunset, suckling the bastard brats of Scott, of Englishry, of Huguenot, brave sons breaking from the womb, wild sons fleeing from their mother, willful city of savage dreamers, so old, so sick with memories, old mother. Some, they say, are damned. But you one day, I think, will walk the streets of paradise. Head high and unashamed. There. Now let my epitaph be written. Oh, absolutely. One of his, his favourite roles, the actor playing Robert Emmett in Dennis Johnston's play, The Old Lady Says No. Let's talk for a little while about him as an actor. I mean, there is a school of thought today that brutally and quite unjustly, I think, dismisses him as a ham. 
I don't think that's fair. I think it's very unfair. I so do I. Um, certainly when I when I was there for the, the 10 to 12 bulky years, I learned more about the entire business in that short time than I had before or mm. since about everything. Whether you change it or not is another matter, but you can't break the rules until you know them. Absolutely, yeah. And, and he not only knew them, but he broke them with great style <laughs> when, when needs be. But, to, to, you know, when I talked a moment ago about the consummate actor, there's a little paragraph in his All for Hecuba. Let me read it, and I think it describes absolutely what I, what I think about it. To be an actor demands a curious and complete surrender of the self and of many personal claims. And I reflected how all art is a wrestling match with life and how acting, more than any other art, is a demonstration of rebellion against the mundanity of everyday existence. Far from being a copyist of life's surface tricks or a facile repeater of traditional antics, the actor should live with such delicacy, with such intensity, that he brings manner and style to all the unimportant trifles of gesture and speech, so that the eating of a fruit, the folding of a letter, the raising of the arm, the donning of a cap, all become in his hands images of significance, profound mirrors of character. To act is to live for a moment with an intenser life, to pass bodily into the sphere of sorrows and of joys greater than our own, to thrust the shoddy surface of what we call real life upwards to a transforming radiance. And while the painter must see, and the poet and musician hear with passion before they hurry to canvas or to paper and ink, the actor must note all down with calmness and precision and must then give to the single moment everything he possesses, soul and voice and body, the inner and the outer selves. Now that, <laughs> That's lovely, isn't it's it? It's beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. He lived his life like that too. He did. Really? Yes, yeah. he did. It was, it was always um, partly Michael on stage and partly Michael at home. Mm. You know, I mean, it, it, yes. it, it, it was home was just as much of a stage as anything else. Well, he said as well his, his his great hero Oscar Wilde that Wilde put his uh, his talent into his work and his genius into his life. That's right, <laughs> and that, that applies to Michael. Mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. I, I very think, much. So. I, I think he was a great actor. I'm not sure that he was always a good actor. Mm. He, ha but he had this en enormous uh, personality on the stage. He could hit the back of the largest auditorium, mm. and um, Christopher. Casson, the late Christopher Casson, once said to me that, um, like uh, his brother-in-law, Annual McMaster, like Christopher Casson's mother, Sybil Thorndike, like Olivier, um, Michael could, uh, his uh, performance could occasionally be very perfunctory, sometimes even very wooden or seem su su superficial, but suddenly these people, uh, Sybil Thorndike, Olivier and McLeamore, had great, great moments. He got an opportunity to, to really come into his own a bit later when he didn't have to hold the reins so much, whereas in an orthodox production, your discipline has to be observed because yeah. there are other people about. But later on, when that no mm. longer pertained, when his only worry was himself and his subject, it was a different matter and a very beautiful one. Well, let's move on to that, so, because on the 3rd of October 1960, magic was created in Dublin's Gaiety Theatre when a solo performer, dressed in a dinner jacket, told the funny and tragic story of Oscar Wilde, and without changing wigs or costume, became some of his most famous characters, Dorian Gray, Lord Goring, King Herod, and of course the formidable Lady Bracknell, <laughs> interrogating the hapless Ernest, or Jack Worthing. Yes. You have a townhouse too, I hope. A girl with a simple, unspoiled nature like Gwendolen 
can hardly be expected to reside in the country. Well, I own a house in Belgrave Square. What number in Belgrave Square? 149. Ah, the unfashionable side. I thought there was something. However, that could easily be altered. Do you mean the fashion or the side? Both, if necessary, I presume. And now to minor matters. Are your parents living? I have lost both my parents, both. To lose one parent, Mr. Worthing, may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose both looks to me like carelessness. Who was your father? He was evidently a man of some wealth. Was he born in what the radical papers call the purple of commerce, or did he rise from the ranks of the aristocracy? I'm afraid I really don't know. The, the, the fact is, Lady Bracknell, I said I had lost my parents. It, it would be nearer the truth to say that my parents seem to have lost me. Um, I, I don't actually know who I am by birth. I, I was, well, I was found. Found? The late Mr. Thomas Cardew, an old gentleman of very charitable and kindly disposition, found me. And he gave me the name of Worthing because he happened to have a first-class ticket for Worthing in his pocket at the time. Worthing is a place in Sussex. It's a, a seaside resort. Where did the charitable gentleman who had a first-class ticket for this seaside resort find you? In a handbag. A handbag? Yes, Lady Bracknell, I was in a handbag. A somewhat large black leather handbag with handles to it. A, a, an ordinary handbag, in fact. In what locality did this Mr. James or Thomas Cardew come across this ordinary handbag? In the cloakroom at Victoria Station, the Brighton line. The line is immaterial. Well, that was the importance of being Oscar, one of the outstanding Irish theatrical successes of the century, which brought MacLeam the worldwide recognition that indeed had long eluded him, and unfortunately on a rather scratchy recording, but there you are, that's technology for you. Christopher, this kind of was the turning point in their fortunes. Up to that, they weren't financially very well off, were they? They, they weren't at all, and anything that, that uh, Michael and Hilton earned from films... Oh. Uh, or from working in other theatre companies, went back into the gate. It was their own theatre. It was an unsubsidised theatre. And they fell on very e evil times, particularly in, on an Egyptian tour when uh, Nasser's government wouldn't allow the money that they had made there to be brought out of the country. And the, th the theatre, in fact, was bankrupt. And they went to the Arts Council, and after a lot of hassle, they got a small grant from the Arts Co Council to help them to pay off their debt so that they could get going again. And the Arts Council, like so many of those committees, never seemed to understand the thing that they're supporting. And they said, yes, we will give you this sum of money, but you must put on more Irish plays. And the gate wasn't meant to put on Irish plays. It no, was founded to yeah. do the, be the opposite of the Abbey, to bring in continental plays mm. and do the mm. international classics. But after the 
Egyptian tour, the bailiffs were actually sent round uh, to take the fridge and the washing machine and the various <laughs> things out of out of Harcourt Terrace. And Hilton Edwards, there was they had a little silver, rushed down the back garden to hide it in the shrubbery. And the bailiffs came in, and the bailiffs were very nice, and they said, "We're very sorry, we we have to do this, but we have to take the fridge and we have to take this and that and the other." And down the stairs came a person <laughs> with mauve eyeshadow <laughs> and gold cheeks <laughs> and wearing a, chi- a Chinese kimono, is it, or kimono, is it, a kimono, <laughs> and little curly Turkish slippers. <laughs> and down the stairs came this apparition, and the two bailiffs got up and <laughs> ran. <laughs> Yes. I think you use an expression in your book where you talk about them starving in jamais. Well, no, that wasn't my phrase. People used to say, oh, yes, of course, starving in jamais, which was the most uh, expensive restaurant in Dublin at the time. But actually, the jamais were very kind to them and used to feed them for free. Mm-hmm. And I suppose they got great entertainment in return. Yes, for it. Well, of course they did. It was a very upmarket yes. cabaret because a great many people visited and frequented jamais because of their presence there. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful. I, that's why I remember seeing them at I remember seeing them there holding court at a table and the whole rest of the Mm. restaurant listening to the conversation. (laughs) Mary, did you find it Uh, nerve-wracking? Because uh, I presume you had a lot of dealings with their financial affairs in your capacity. Was it nerve-wracking? Well, yes. I remember one time when, uh, and this is, you know, something that that struck me as being very funny. The accountants had said, would you please send us all the bills and we'll do the audit? And uh, I said yes, and I started taking the, the things out of the files, you see, and putting them into separate envelopes. And I was halfway through this, and Michael came in and said to me, what are you doing, darling? And, was, you know, and I said, well, you know, the accountants want all this, this stuff sent. And he said, but what are you doing? I mean, you know, why are you doing it in this peculiar fashion? And I said, well, how else would I do it? You know, because they were all listed sort of A, B, C, and so on, you see. And um, he said, no, just put them all into one big envelope, and they'll be fine. And I said, well, you know, really, I, I don't think so. Because my first training is he was in a bank. And, yeah. and I knew that people like things segmented. And anyway, he, per- he persisted and I bundled the whole thing into this large envelope. It was rather like a cushion by the time I'd finished. And um, a couple of days later, I had this rather irate telephone call saying, you do realise, do you, Miss Cannon, that we have spent the last two days with a team of about eight people trying to sort <laughs> these things out. Why did you send them like this? And I said, Dr. McLeamot said I was to do that. And she said, take no notice of him at all. If you want to speak to me, want me to speak to you again, please <laughs> never listen to that man. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Bill, that wouldn't have been your concern. Uh, you were an actor. Of course, you wanted to get paid every week. I presume you did. I most certainly did. But it certainly was a turning point for me at that stage because I had realised then in my innocence that these people had total confidence in me because I was getting parts that Michael had played himself. And, of course, when you were in a play written by him, uh, playing the part that he had created for himself in a costume designed by him, in a set designed by him, in a direction by Hilton, with lighting designed by Hilton, as an actor, you were a living man. I mean, in retrospect, these were wonderful days for me. And, of course, I was so young and innocent that I was without fear. 
today if I was asked to do some of these things I would be squeamish and a little knowledge being a dangerous thing kind of thing but it was wonderful now in retrospect that they had such confidence in me yeah. and I had a great rapport with them because we had a lot in common we were we were passionately interested in music we had long talks about music particularly with Hilton and Hilton was a singer and Michael Pillar played the piano and all of that kind of thing so we had an affinity and it was wonderful for me there was one particular show um, that you were in. It was Again, it was a revival, wasn't it? Home for Christmas. Oh, yeah. Well, that was really a turning point for me because that was an enormous part mm. which Michael had written for himself. Christopher will remember that. What, what year was that, Chris? About eight, uh, 70, uh, late 78 or 9 or something like yeah, that. When you were in it? Yeah. Yes, it was. And it, 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 uh, uh, it, it was first done uh, round about um, 1950, I That's think. That's right. It's he a great it. part. Mm. It's, a, it's a sort of Irish-French farce. Yeah. Uh, about a family going on a European tour, you know, and uh, the reason being that they're being followed by these young men. And in, in the production I played was with, with Scott Fredericks and David Byrne chasing three women. But instead of it solving the problem, the boys go after them to all of these various cities around Europe in order to be home for Christmas. And it really is great, great fun, you know. Did you have to sing in that? I sang a little tune in the background of it. Um, there, was, there was a piece of music to depict the atmosphere of each of the cities. Like when yeah. we came to, to Paris, there was the Can-Can, the and when we went to Germany, there was something else, or Austria. And then in, in Italy, there was another little, a little tune which I sang. I think it was a, a little thing that Michael wrote. He wrote it himself, did he? Mm. Notte de luna di stella d'oro. Do you remember that, Mary? No. Notte de more... <coughs> no, I never saw him before. Christmas. Well, B Bill Golding prepared to be exquisitely embarrassed, as Michael might have said, because <laughs> I have a recording of that song, which we're going to hear now. You are joking. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> goodness, when I first heard that, Michael was banging it out with one finger <laughs> on the piano in Harco Terrace, and we put the Italian words to it, which he wrote. 
And do you know, the following week, Mary probably wouldn't remember this, I wouldn't expect her to, I got an extra five pounds in my wages. Ah, isn't that lovely? (laughs) 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 But shortly after Michael died, I found myself in a hospital bed opposite Hilton. And we used to talk quite a lot. We were Mm. in Baggett Street Hospital. Oh, yes. And uh, we used to talk quite a lot. And uh, one of the things he said to me, which I found very interesting, was he said... Michael wasn't a great actor. There is no tradition of acting in Ireland. Michael's tradition was the Shanachie. That's where he came from. (laughs) And that's why he really came into his own in the one-man shows. Any thoughts about that? Well, if he he was a Shanachie, he was acting being a Shanachie. Because, I mean, he didn't have the Shanachie tradition, but he had probably heard Shanachie. And And used it. And used it. And the wonderful description of the landlady in Galway. Ah, yes, yes. I must be talking to my friends. He recited as if he was a Shanachie. Yes. uh, But it it was acting. Um, No, his tradition, his tradition was an English acting school. Yeah. from Beerbohm Tree and, yeah. and Irving and people Isn't like that. it extraordinary to think that that huge leap was necessary to achieve what he did? Because it must have been very, very precious at that level in England as a young English boy. Very precise, very English, very British. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. to come with this enormous brogue, it is yes. quite a remarkable But also, also what Christopher said there, it kind of leads you to believe that Hilton bought the whole story of him being Irish. Hilton what? Hilton believed the whole story. Well, see, that's what I don't know, because I didn't know them well at all. Mm -hmm. And I knew Hilton quite well, because he was head of drama here in RTE Mm -hmm. when I was a producer. Mm -hmm. I knew Michael fairly well, and I worked with them once or twice. Mm -hmm. But Mary and Bill knew them both much better. But the wonderful thing about... Nobody has been able to tell me if Hilton knew that he was... was, English. English. The great thing about uh, talking to my friends was, although Oscar was a very specific show and a very dramatic and very beautiful, wonderful show, this was actually a more entertaining show because he had access to more uh, authors, more characters, and all that. Wonderful. I enjoyed it. And you gave me a copy of the record for my 21st birthday, (laughs) Mr. Golding, which was not today nor yesterday, as they say. Let's hear a little bit of that now, where through the mists of time, he's recreating the landlady in Galway, over whose licensed premises he once had lodging. It's a great piece. Did I ever tell you about the man that wanted to marry me a couple of years after my first man going on the way of truth, may the Lord be good for me? Well, here I was, a beautiful young lady sitting below in the bar in my first blue dress after I come out of the morning, when the door opened and a man came in. And he and his own too. <laughs> I knew him well. I knew I didn't let on at all, but I knew him. And here he was, staggering around, to drink taken, of course. My God, he was footless. And he was asking for more brandy, ale, sherry madeira wine. And then he got three big glasses of whiskey in mine. He was swimming in it. Me Adam was jaded, put in the cocks. Fierce what he did after the whiskey. He drew towards me from the wished. He raised up the flap of the counter and round with my small piece to my side of the bar. Man, dear, says he to me then, and he rocking on the two feet. Man, dear, says he to me, do you like me? Mr. Linsky, says I to him, but that was his name, God forgive him. Mr. Linsky, says I, have no cause to dislike you so far, says I. <laughs> so far, says I. But I would be very glad, Mr. Linsky, says I, if you'd kindly keep to your own side of the bar and not come tripping and trotting around to my side of a pestering with a decent connet woman, born, bred and reared, thanks be to God and his blessed mother, and where are you from, Mr. Linsky, says I. Where are you from, says I, with a name like that? <laughs> oh, he wasn't in the least put out, you know. Didn't mind at all. I was too drunk to notice. 
Michael remembering his landlady in Galway during his days with Tyviak Nagalieva. Indeed, he writes a lot about this lady in All for Hecuba, and he had a great affection for her. How was he with women, Mary? Did he get along well with women? Yes, he did. He had no um, no problem at all. Men and women were to him equal, mm. and uh, he was always very charming. And uh, you know, it it was. It, it, he didn't set out to be charming, but he was—he was—he had a sort of enveloping mm. um, charm, which you know spread all over anyone who came into the house at all. Unless he disliked them, then he would sort of retreat a little bit. And you—you—if you, you knew him, mm. you, you realized that this was not a, per- a person that he wanted to know. Yeah. But uh, generally speaking, he was—he was very, very happy in the company of women altogether. Well, in January 1978, Michael was by now a very sick man, and he gave his last major interview to Donnako Dooling for his radio programme Highways and Byways. Now, the tape that Donnak has left at the archive is the unedited version. Michael apparently rambled a lot, he sounded tired and disillusioned, and indeed Donnaker told me that one of the difficulties during the interview was that Michael kept trying to light a cigarette, <laughs> and because his eyesight was virtually gone, he found this hard to do, and then when eventually he did light it, he kept missing the ashtray, and sometimes he even flicked ash into the coffee. You probably remember that, Mary, because I believe you helped set up that interview for Donnaker. Mm, yes, yeah. I did. Anyway, suddenly he became concentrated and even animated when the subject of God and the afterlife was raised. I personally believe in heaven, ultimately, but I don't think it, we go straight there. I don't think any of us are ready for that. Mm. And I'm sure we're not ready for hell, and, and I don't think we ever will be. At the, the hands of, a, of the God of love, we are supposed to go through an infinity, an eternity of ignoble tortures that we, with all our sins and stupidities, would not inflict upon a rat for five minutes, mm. let alone forever. Yet he's supposed to do that to us, or allow it to be done to us, as a punishment for, for this or that. Forever and ever and ever. Well, the idea is barbarous, it's, it's, and to me, ludicrous. No, I believe in a system after death. But this is only very personal. I don't. Want, I never say to convert, any, or try to convert anybody to it. I believe in the theory of reincarnation, mm. not necessarily on this earth, but in some form. That I think that the human spirit is born again into another body, with all the sort of earthly experiences, trials, triumphs, unhappinesses thwartings and everything else of what we we all go through every day mm. and it is it's the same system as rehearsing a play if you like in my profession mm. or in going to school in anybody's boyhood or girlhood you go back and learn what you failed to learn the day before all the things you couldn't learn yet you have to learn them in order to pass a certain exam and the exam presumably is for heaven or to be top boy in the school or whatever it may be Michael's last radio interview and of course shortly after that well he was finding out first hand about the afterlife Mary you were with him at the end yes I was uh, he would be at home for two or three days and the last day the, the day that he died 
It was a particularly horrendous day because he had been told to do exercises because he had uh, hurt his leg and he was sort of doing them and cursing at the same time and telling us that, you know, this was all very fine and all the rest of it. And eventually he just got back into bed and there, there were nurses there, of course, the whole time. And um, about, I suppose it was around 10 o'clock or 10.30, I don't really know because the day had seemed endless. And he just said, you won't go, will you? And I said, no, I'll stay with you as long as I can. And um, Hilton was there, and Paddy, I think, and and uh, the nurse as well, of course. And he was talking away, and then he sort of just lay back as if he was tired. And um, then he more or less sat up, and his head just dropped onto his chest, and he was gone. And he went peacefully. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. We're drawing to and a close, and there's just one thing I want to put to all of the three of you, and... We like to think nowadays that we're so sophisticated and we've just come out of the dark ages and we're all wonderful people and God help us all, we're all European. But here in this conservative Ireland, the island, the island of Archbishop McQuaid of De Valera, the dogs in the street knew that apart from the fact that they were partners in business, they were also partners in a homosexual relationship. Mm-hmm. And yet nobody bothered about it. No. What does that tell us about us or about Ireland? I think it it tells me that there was probably a certain innocence abroad uh, from the general public about the consequences of homosexuality, but that coming from our profession, it was not surprising what you did or how you behaved. In fact, it was almost expected that you should behave in some very different form or other, other than ordinary people, shall we say. <laughs> and I don't think there was terribly much understood or spoken about it at an intricate level, if you know what I mean. Would you agree with that, Mary? Yes, I would. It, it, just, it just didn't... It, I don't think it bothered people. Mm. Uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't know. They sort of said, mm. oh, yes, you mm. know, they're, they're partners and that's it. And there were know. jokes, but they weren't malicious jokes. <coughs> the, the, the gate and the abbey were always known as Sodom and Begorra, weren't mm-hmm. they? But uh, none of that was meant maliciously. No, not, not at all. all. It, was, it was just, a, 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 as you say, a joke. Yeah, and as you said earlier, which was which, Christopher? <laughs> I, I think we were a very civilised society and yeah. it was all right. And yes. Nobody was going to make an issue out of this. Mm. And incidentally, the uh, Dublin Corporation uh, gave them uh, both um, honorary citizenship. They were made free, free men of the, of the city of Dublin and there were a lot of very hard chores sitting on the corpo at that mm-hmm. time and they weren't going to be bothered with a thing like mm. that. Incidentally, none of the great Abbey actors, McCormick or Fitzgerald, Gerald or anyone like that were made freemen of the city of Dublin. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And you know, it does prompt one to remind us mm-hmm. that they got through so much work. They did. Absolutely. They did yeah. so yeah. much yeah. looking yeah. back at the books and yeah. all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. It is incredible to think yeah. of how much they did. And when trying to assess such a long and productive life in a programme like this, well, obviously we can only scratch the surface. However, we hope that we've given you a little of the flavour of the man and maybe awakened a few memories. On Friday the 22nd of June 1973, as Christopher told us, Michael and Hilton were awarded the freedom of Dublin City and the Lord Mayor, the Right Honourable Frank Klusky, spoke of their vision and initiative and said that all our lives had been brighter for their being among us. And I think that's a very good note to end on, isn't it? It is. My thanks to Mary Cannon, Bill Golding and Christopher Fitzsimon for helping me in this pleasant task of remembering Michael. And thanks to you for listening. We'll leave you now with another excerpt from The Importance of Being Oscar, where Michael talks about the dying days of his hero, Um, Oscar Wilde. Bye-bye. God bless you. Bye. The poet's last days, like that little story, was strange and sad enough. 
Physically, he suffered very greatly, sometimes thrusting his hand into his mouth to prevent himself from crying aloud with the pain. It is a source of profound comfort to many people to remember that towards the end, the faithful friend Robert Ross called in a priest who baptized and received the Protestant-born Irishman Oscar Wilde into the Catholic Church and finally gave him extreme unction. He died peacefully and slowly after his death, his name, which for so many years had remained silent or had been spoken only in shameful or bawdy whispers, began through the gradual reappearance of his books, his poems, his very brilliant essays, his comedies, his fairy tales for children, to sound once more like a bell in the world of art and letters. And to the very end, he retained not a little, but a great deal of all the old, incorrigible willfulness and gaiety of his temperament. Indeed, on the morning before the day he died, he looked up at Robert Ross with a sudden gleam in his eyes, and he whispered, Robbie, Robbie, when the last trumpet sounds, and you and I are couched in our purple and porphyry tomb, I shall lean towards you and I shall whisper the last trumpet. But Robbie, I shall add, Robbie, dear boy, let us pretend we do not hear it.